You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. Well, this morning we are in Psalm 22. Uh, if you have, have your Bible, and I hope you do, would you turn to Psalm 22? At Radiant Church this summer, we have been, um, we have been exploring the Psalms to find Jesus there. We know that Scripture as a whole tells us one story, the story of redemption in Christ for the glory of God. And the Psalms are a a crucial part of telling that story. When we read the Psalms, we expect them to show us Christ. We expect them to lead us to the cross. Psalm 22 especially does that, and we expect that from the from the very first glance at Psalm 22, verse 1. It's a cry that we are familiar with because we've read the gospel so much. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's verse 1 of Psalm 22, and it's what has become known as the cry of dereliction from the cross when Jesus was hanging there suffering for my sin and yours. Those words came from his lips, from his heart. And so we tend to think of Psalm 22 as being about the crucifixion. And certainly, as, we'll, as we read it, as we go through it together, we'll see uh, some, some very strong parallels that refer to, suf- to the suffering Jesus uh, endured on the cross. You know, even to the point of, uh, you know, uh, they, they've taken my garments and they've, they're, they're casting lots for them. But I want you to see this morning that Psalm 22 isn't first and foremost about the cross. David wasn't thinking of crucifixion when he wrote it. Fair fair enough? It meant something to David. And we will understand how it relates to the cross best when we see what it meant to David first. We're going to see that David here, the psalmist, lays out a framework for enduring suffering in faith. Faithful suffering. And then we'll see that Jesus lived in and fleshed out that framework. He lived out that that, that pattern perfectly to show us how a righteous person suffers in faith. If I could summarize Psalm 22, it would be with this simple statement. Suffering in submission to God results in everlasting worship. Suffering in submission to God leads to everlasting worship. And My prayer for you today is that by the time we finish and you walk out of here, that you will be encouraged. You'll go away encouraged knowing that God is faithful even and especially in your hard things. That you'll be encouraged that Jesus has ensured that your suffering has purpose. That he has set an example for you to follow. Well, Psalm 22 is arranged in two really obvious halves. uh, Verses 1 through 21, the first half, and yes, they're not even halves, but it's just two parts. The whole divides into two parts, and I'm not a math guy, so just go with me. I'm going to call them halves. The first 21 verses lay out what I'm going to call the tension of suffering and sovereignty. And then from 22 to the end, we're going to see uh, the the, um, worship that comes from deliverance. 
We're going to see the whole package, the whole experience of suffering from the beginning to the end. So let's look at the first 21 verses together and see how David talks about the tension of suffering and sovereignty. And I'm doing something here I don't do very often. It's a two-level outline. So if you have the, the bulletin or the, the handout today, you can see, uh, you can follow uh, pretty easily. In each of the two halves, I'm going to make two important observations about this framework for suffering that David lays out for us. Follow along as I read these first 21 verses. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the, from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. Pretty sad portrayal, isn't it? David is expressing his feelings here. And he's honest with God about it. He says, Lord, this is how I feel. I'm opening my heart to you. And I'm confessing that you feel far away. He feels like God is far away. Right at the very beginning. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Verse 11. Be not far from me. Because trouble is near. He feels like God is far away. And he contrasts that. You notice with the the image of a nursing mother. 
a mother in this, very, in this close, intimate relationship with her infant, where she is feed, literally giving the baby everything that the baby needs to survive. He says, God, you have taken care of me. You have been close to me like that before. But now it feels like you're not. And guess who is close? My enemies. People that want to kill me. They're the ones that are close by now. The trouble is so close. He feels, he feels frightened. He feels abandoned. Right? Like the enemies are closer than his source of help. We don't know exactly what David's situation was. We don't know exactly what he was afraid of, but he was in deep trouble. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. He's, he's um, frequently in the, in the Old Testament. The, the bulls of Bashan come up. It's like, you know about the bulls of Bashan, right? Everybody knows about them. A region that was, that was conquered by Israel on their way into the promised land. As they were taking the land that God had given them, one of the areas that they conquered was this area of Bashan. And it was known as a place that was uh, uh, rich in, in um, grazing land. And so it was an ideal place to raise livestock. So the cattle of that region became known as strong and healthy. And when he refers to the bulls like this, it's with the implication of impending violence. We know that. I mean, verse 13 compares them. uh, He goes from bulls to lions, a lion that's roaring and getting ready to pounce and, and, and eat its prey. And then in verse 16, he compares them to dogs. Dogs are surrounding me, a company of evildoers. These are not, you know, these are not your pug, you know, at home or your Jack Russell Terrier that does tricks for, for everybody. These dogs are big, nasty, dirty scavengers. They were wild animals that you didn't want around. They were a threat. David says, God, you feel so far away, and this is what's close to me right now. And that's the substance of his plea is, God, don't be so far away. So he feels like God is far away. Also, he feels insignificant and despised. He feels hated. And, and, and he feels very, I don't know, small. Look at verse 4. He says, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. He's contrasting himself with them. They, they cried out to you and you rescued them. They were not put to shame when they trusted in you. But then verse 6. But I'm a worm. I'm not a man I feel so small. There was probably an element of feeling like a failure in here as well. As he thinks about the, his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and, and the faith that they had in God when they couldn't see what the result would be. The faith of Moses and, and, and Joshua who followed the Lord and they were delivered from Egypt and they took the promised land. He's my ancestors trusted in you and you delivered them and here I am surrounded by bulls and lions and dogs and whatever I feel everybody hates me I'm not one of those great Christians that I hear about 
uh, on podcasts. I'm not, you know, one of the great people of faith like I've read in books. I'm just, I'm not that person. I feel so small. And he feels like he's falling apart, physically falling apart. All of those references to like verse 14, poured out like water, my bones are out of joint, my heart is melted like a candle inside of me. My strength is dried up like like shattered pottery in the dust. My tongue sticks to my jaws. Have you ever been like that? You're like, things are going really bad and you're nervous and anxious and afraid and it dries out your mouth. And you open your mouth to start talking and you just like, you can't get the words out because your mouth is so dried out. I'm falling apart here. And, and it doesn't appear that he's been in battle and he's wounded or he's sick. There's no reference to that. It's just, God, I am in bad shape. My enemies are surrounding me. I'm alone, hated, and weak. This feels hopeless, and I don't understand how you could let this happen. Can you relate? Have you ever been... I don't know, whatever it might be, a broken relationship, a financial hardship, a medical crisis of some kind, danger. And you're like, where's God? You know, David's honest with the Lord about this. He's honest with him. But at the same time, he doesn't get demanding and self-indulgent. He doesn't sulk before the Lord. But he's honest with him. Lord, this is how I feel. And he shows us that it's okay to do this in faith. That, that the Lord wants us to be honest. Now, this listen, this is not if you've heard somebody say, you know, hey, if you're angry with God, then you just go ahead and yell at God. He's big enough. He can handle it. That's not what I'm saying. And that's not what David is doing. David is opening his heart as we'll see in a minute, to the God that he knows is holy. And he's saying, God, I feel abandoned. Suffering sometimes feels like abandonment. And it's important to be honest about that because of the second point, the second observation that we're going to make from David's experience here. And that is that suffering doesn't change divine reality. Suffering doesn't change the reality of who God is and what he is like. You see, at the beginning of the psalm, right after David, he, listen, there's no sense of like building to a climax here. He starts out at level 10. God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away? But then immediately, verse 3, he says, yet you're holy. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel. You are holy. David begins to acknowledge the divine realities that he knows are true. These are things that I know to be true. And if you follow, if you go back over those first 21 verses, you can see he's alternating between, God, I feel like you're abandoning me, and yet I know this to be true about you. He alternates between those two for these first 21 verses. He's honest about the one This is how I feel. And he reminds himself of the other. This is what I know to be true. He says, God, I know that you're holy. 
You are exalted. You are high and lifted up in majesty. Verse 3, you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. We sing your praises because we know that you are worthy of worship. You are enthroned on our praises. And part of this holiness that David knows to be true would include that God is blameless. God, I know that you are high and lifted up and therefore you are not guilty of doing anything evil. You haven't committed any wrongs against me. You're holy. I know that. David has to, as soon as he expresses how deeply abandoned he feels, he immediately realizes God has not changed. No matter how I feel right now, God is still holy. And you notice he doesn't try to resolve that. He doesn't stomp his feet on the ground and say, why God? He simply recounts what he knows to be true. So, he acknowledges the reality that God is holy. He acknowledges the reality that God is faithful and trustworthy. Verses 4 and 5 that, that we've already looked at. God, you have a track record of faithfulness. I can look back into human history and I can see how you have made promises and kept them. I can see how you have never abandoned your people. That you make commitments and you keep them. You are trustworthy. That reputation has been passed down to us. You're holy, you're faithful, and you're caring. Verses 9 and 10, that image of a nursing mother. And he says, you have been like that for me. Look at verse 9. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. Verse 10, on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. I know that you're faithful. You've brought me this far. At a time in history when infant mortality was pretty high, a lot of babies died and a lot of mothers died giving birth. It's like, God, you brought me this far. You cared for me from my mother's womb through birth. Like, are you going to walk out on me now? But David knows that suffering doesn't change divine reality. David knows that pain so often brings us, brings confusion. Suffering throws us into confusion. And we have to come back to what we know. David models that so well for us here. This is how I feel. And this is what I know to be true. We need to come back to those landmarks. My wife and I like to go hiking and um, there have been times when we're out on a trail, and we'll read, we'll read ahead, you know, we'll talk to people that have been on the trail if we, if we can. It's like, okay, we want to do this hike. It looks like a really great payoff at the end, and so we want to do this hike. And we're not like hardcore backpackers or anything, just we're day hikers. But we love to be in the mountains and to go hiking, and sometimes you get out on the trail, and you've seen it from a distance, and you've looked at the maps online or, or whatever, You've talked to people, but when you get in the middle of it, it's very disorienting. It's like, but I thought the peak was over there, but we're walking this way. This doesn't feel right. There are various points along the trail where you, you feel disoriented. 
Are you sure we're going the right way? I don't know. This doesn't feel right. But we know that we won't get lost as long as we keep the right landmarks in view. We know that we won't get lost because we have a map that tells us which way to go. We know that we won't get lost because we have talked to people who have been on the trail. Suffering doesn't change divine reality, and we have to keep coming back to those truths that we know to be true. Yes, you're holy. I know I feel this way, but yes, God, I know that you're holy. I know that you don't make mistakes. I know that you're faithful. And sometimes we have to say these things through tears. So David lays it out honestly before the Lord. Remembering who God is doesn't try to noodle out all of the reasons why God might be doing this. He just waits. And I love this about Psalm 22. This was one of my, one of my big aha moments as I was studying the passage um, earlier this, this summer. In verse 21, Look at verse 21. I don't know how many different like versions or translations we have here, but um, it's translated in, in, in various ways. Save me from, and I'm reading the ESV. Um, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. But there's an important change in the text there. When he says, you have rescued me, suddenly he's talking in the past tense. Something has happened. And so... Your translation may say it this way, and this is probably the best way to read it. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have rescued me. There's a break in the text. Suddenly something has happened. And maybe it wasn't suddenly. Like maybe David wrote the first 21 verses one week, and then three weeks later, a month, six months later, he wrote the rest of the psalm. We don't know. Suddenly he's talking in the past tense, and he's saying, you've rescued me. The transition is so abrupt that you can miss it very easily. And we pass from the tension between suffering and sovereignty to the worship of gratitude for deliverance, starting in verse 22. So he cries out to God, don't be far off, and then he waits for the answer. Follow as I read, starting in verse 22. So you have rescued me. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Uh, Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. 
Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. I don't think there's any way that a psalm could have such a different, like, such a different second half. The first half and the second half are just so radically different. David is now celebrating. And we're going to see two things about deliverance here that will be so encouraging to us that I think will be transforming for us. First, deliverance proves God's faithfulness. Deliverance proves God's faithfulness. It's an experience of God's goodness. But listen, look at what David says. As soon as he sees God's deliverance, you have rescued me. He says, I will tell how much better you've made me feel. I will tell everyone the crisis is over. I feel so much better. Everything's back to normal. He doesn't say, I'm going to tell about me. He says, I will tell of your name. I will tell of your name. Your deliverance, your goodness poured out into my suffering is an opportunity for me to speak of your name. Um, God's name is his reputation, okay? Especially in the Old Testament, where God's name is referred to, it, it's often, very often, most of the time, it is a reference to his character and how that character is worked out in history and becomes his reputation. David said, this is, your deliverance of me is first and foremost about you. It's about your name, about your reputation. There's a passage in Ezekiel, chapter 36, that makes this so clear. In, in Ezekiel, right, Ezekiel is in the land of exile. He's in Babylon. And there are, and, and Israel, the 12 tribes have been scattered all over the place because of their rebellion against the Lord. But in this prophecy, in Ezekiel 36, God is promising restoration. He's saying, I'm going to pour out my grace on you. I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to draw you back together. But listen to how it comes out. Ezekiel 36, 22. God says to Ezekiel, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord, the true God, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Did you get that? The nations will know that I am the true God when through you I vindicate my holiness so that they can see it. I'm about to do something wildly great for you, Israel. But I'm not going to do it first and foremost for you. I'm doing it so the nations will know that I'm the true God. You see? Uh, Jeff would have heard this in class years ago. Lee, Lee White was also a student. I got to see 
uh, hymn this morning. They would have heard me say this in class. God never does anything for only one reason. When you think about the sovereignty of God, you think about everything that God does, even when my experience of it is so personal. He's not just doing it for one reason. There's not just one reason. What God does in my life, he, he does through my life for others. Whatever God is doing that affects me one way affects somebody else a different way. God never does anything for only one reason, but one of the main reasons, we might say the fundamental reason that God does anything is for the sake of his name, that he would be known and worshiped. So David says, I will tell of your name because you've delivered me. Because you've answered my prayer. You've demonstrated that you have not, verse 24, that you have not despised me. That you haven't hated me. That you haven't abandoned me. But you listened. When I cried out to you, you heard everything I said. And I had to wait for your timing. But you have shown me that you didn't abandon me. Hard things draw our attention back to God and his goodness. You see, when God delivers his people, when God pours out his goodness into your hard thing, it's a way that God reveals himself to us. Because we're easily distracted, aren't we? I mean, we're easily distracted by good things, right? We get caught up in good things in our lives and we tend to forget about God. How much more is that to temptation when we're suffering? When, uh, when something bad happens to me, the temptation is for that bad thing to simply consume my life. It's everything I think about. All I can think about is how bad I feel, right? It's like, it's like when a man gets a cold. <laughs> I'll just say it on behalf of us dudes because the women already know it's true. Right? It's like, honey, I'm so sick. I feel really awful. Can you just take care of me for a week? (laughs) Right? That one bad thing consumes my reality. But when God pours out his goodness, when he delivers us, it's a way of bringing us back. Not just the suffering, but the deliverance itself. Are we paying attention? God is proving his faithfulness to us. He's drawing us nearer to himself that we might know him better. Are we paying attention? Because there's another piece of this that I want us to all just put in our pockets and take with us this morning. And it's this. Deliverance gives us a megaphone. Deliverance gives us a megaphone. When God has poured out his goodness into our difficulty, that is our chance to make him known. David says, I will tell of your name because this is about you before it's about me. But David says, I will tell. Look at what God has done. He immediately wants to run around. Look at... um, Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He immediately thinks of his, we would say, fellow Christians, the other people of God that he knows. 
guys, guys, listen. Listen to what God did. Isn't he awesome? That's his first reaction. When he realizes that God has brought deliverance, his first reaction is, I can't wait to tell people how good God is. And the picture that he paints here is fascinating. Starting in verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. What is, what is he talking about here? How, like we have a hard time connecting to language like that. He's picturing a, a, um, a fellowship offering, a thank offering. Right? Under the law of Moses, you could make a vow before the Lord. And uh, when, when God answered your prayer, you would come and fulfill that vow and you would offer sacrifices and fulfill whatever commitments you made to the Lord. But listen, we think of Old Testament sacrifices as where, you know, you take an animal, they slaughter the animal and they chuck it on the altar and it burns up and it goes away. It's a little more than that. That was only one, the whole burnt offering. There are five different kinds of offerings in the Old Testament and one of them is the thank offering, the fellowship offering. There, you bring the animal, and when they slaughter the animal, they only take certain pieces of it to go on the altar as an offering to the Lord. The rest of it, you take and you make a feast out of it. And it's not just like, well, this is what we're having for dinner tonight. (laughs) No, it's a party. You have a feast, and you invite your family and your friends and the priests who are nearby, and you take the poor and the needy people who are nearby, and I mean, I don't know how big you're you know, your sheep is or whatever it is that you've been offering, but you invite people and you say, let's celebrate together because look at what God did for us. That's the picture that David is painting here. He says, you've done this. I can't wait to get people together and celebrate and celebrate what you've done. So he says, verse 25, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. I'm going to get the faithful together, people that also love the Lord Verse 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. I'm going to invite people who are still suffering, right? This person whose marriage is falling apart and this person whose kids have gone astray and this person who's in a a financial crisis and this person in a a medical crisis, I'm going to gather them together and I'm going to say, listen, God's been so good to me and he hasn't abandoned you either. And we're going to celebrate together. But then... David loses all sense of proportion. Like he really goes off the deep end. Starting in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship (laughs) this good thing that you've done for me, right? Like you scattered the bulls and you got rid of the dogs and you've delivered me. I want the whole world to know. Like not just my inner circle. You've been so good. I want everybody to know. All the ends of the earth. Verse 28, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. They need to know about him. They need to hear about it. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. <laughs> the trans- or the, like a literal translation is all the fat ones of the earth. All the fat ones of the earth will eat and worship. It's like people that don't really need this feast. People that that have everything they need, people that are already prosperous, they will come and hear the goodness of God and know that they need him too. And then it's not just all the ends of the earth and both the rich and the poor. 
right? Because he goes on, and not just the prosperous, but also those who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. All of them will hear of your goodness. But now it's not just everybody on earth. It's everybody who will ever live. Verse 30, posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people that I will never meet because they haven't been born yet. That you've done it. Deliverance gives us a megaphone. Do you tell people not just how much better you feel. Do you tell people how good God has been to you? I will tell, David said. So we're going to apply this. We're going to apply it right now. You know, because when, pre- when the preacher says, here's what you should do, you know, go and do this. We don't know if you're going to walk out the door and do this. So we're just going to do it before you leave the room. Don't worry, I won't do anything super awkward. It's all, that always makes people nervous when the visiting preacher says, we're going to do something different. It won't be awkward. All I want you to do is think about something difficult that has happened in your life. I want you to think about the hardest time you've been through so far in your life. Maybe a crisis that your family went through. Maybe it was cancer. Some other medical crisis. Maybe it was a a broken relationship. A marriage or a parent-child relationship or a Um, a, a, a financial crisis, whatever it was, you were in deep need. And like David, you felt like God was far away. I want you to think about the darkest day that you can remember. And I'm thinking of mine. I want you to think not about the deliverance yet. I want you to think about the darkest day. Do you remember what that felt like? When you could have been the one crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you remember? I don't want you to rush through that. Now, and by the way, I know that some of you feel like that now. Now I want you to remember the day that you could look back. Maybe it it took 10 years But the day where you could look back and say, God got us through that. I can look back and I can say, God did not hate me. He didn't abandon me. He came through. Do you remember? Okay, now, if you can remember that, I just want you to raise your hand and hold it up there. I will tell, David said, this is how we're going to tell of God's goodness. Hold your hand up until it feels really awkward like we shouldn't still be holding our hands up. Now look around. Go ahead and look around the room. People won't mind you looking at them. If you're in the front, turn around and look at the back. Look at how many hands are up. Look at how many stories of God's goodness are right here in this room. Go ahead and put it down. Are you telling of God's goodness? Are you using the megaphone that he has given you by delivering you, by pouring out his goodness into your hard time? 
Deliverance gives us a megaphone to speak of the goodness of God. Now, what does, any, what does all of this have to do with the crucifixion? Why would Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus knew Psalm 22. He knew Psalm 22. And in the depth of his suffering, he identified with the psalmist who suffered. Psalm 22 is not just uh, a psalm that contains all of these really cool little prophetic nuggets in it about the crucifixion. Of course it does. It points us to the crucifixion. But what it does is it shows us Jesus who suffered and endured through in faith. You see, Jesus suffered like we do. The writer of Hebrews says he suffered in every way. He was tempted in every way like we are tempted. Every category of temptation that we face, he faced it. And he suffered. He suffered in this broken world like we do. And on the cross, he felt abandoned as he was mocked, abused, and tortured to death by his enemies that surrounded him. But he trusted in his faithful father and was brought through the ultimate trial to the ultimate deliverance, resurrection, and the reversal of death. Now listen. Now, through faith in him, his victory is our victory. And we can turn and encourage one another to faithfulness, even in suffering. We can tell each generation, like verse 31 says, that he has done it. Or, in the words of Jesus on the cross, that it is finished. He has won the victory over suffering and over death forever. Suffering gives us a fresh experience of the gospel, a new encounter with our faithful God. And that puts us on a platform to share the good news of the finished work of Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the place of ultimate authority. So be encouraged. As you move through your hard time today, whatever it might be, or as you reflect on his deliverance in previous days, remember, through his death and resurrection, Jesus certifies that our suffering will not be pointless, that our Father will not abandon us, that the deliverance from sin and death that he bought for us with his body and blood will accomplish God's purpose and bring us safely into his kingdom.